This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipska from Chabad of Hyde Park. And a wonderful Erev Shabbos to all of you. Good to be with you again to talk about, well, to talk about the Parsha, to talk about things that are important to us. But this show is going to be, well, a little different than the ones we normally have. This is the first time that I'm going to have a guest, a very special guest that I'll introduce to you in a moment or two. A guest that has come to visit South Africa. I'll ask him why. And he will talk to us. He'll talk to us about his visit. He'll talk to us his home. And he will talk to us about what he is going to be doing and doing here in South Africa. The parish, of course, is Bishalach. Bishalach, when Pharaoh sent the Jewish people out of Egypt. And it's a special Shabbos. It's a special Shabbos because we are going to celebrate Shabbos Shira, the Shabbos of the song, the Shabbos that we well, we have the song that Moshe and the Jewish people sang in praise of God, thanking him for the incredible miracles, the splitting of the sea, the Jewish people coming out of Egypt, the great liberation. But the, the Parshan name itself is a little bit disturbing. It's disturbing because it doesn't mean when the Jewish people went out of Egypt or marched out of Egypt, it was they were sent out of Egypt. And the word sent seems to suggest that it was, well, not according to something that they really wanted. You don't send somebody away if, in fact, they want to go themselves. And we have to understand within the context of the Parsha what it really means that the Jewish people were sent. And and as we see the Parsha, there were all sorts of moments within the great liberation marching out of Egypt that the Jewish people rebel, rebel against Moshe, question him, and become agitated and angry when their comforts are not immediate. And because of that, we have to understand what was the condition of the minds of the Jewish people, the hearts of the Jewish people at that time, one would think after so many years of bitter slavery, they would rush to get out. This would be a moment of great joy and any discomfort that they might experience in the desert or wherever they were in the wilderness would be nothing in comparison to the difficulties that they had to endure in Egypt. But nonetheless, what we see is a strange combination of, on the one hand, the song of Az Yashir, we sing the great praise, but at the same time, a moment later, it would appear that there was a lot of agitation, upset, and almost anger on the part of the Jews for having been taken out of Egypt. But perhaps, as we'll talk with our guests in a short while, some of that will be clarified in terms of understanding how it is that Jewish people throughout history have had to live with a combination of factors, sometimes seeming, well, opposite, contradictory factors on the one hand, wanting to get out of exile, but at the same time, resisting it as well to the point that you have to be sent. Our guest this week is Rabbi Shimon Freundlich. Rabbi Shimon Freundlich is the, uh, well, the head rabbi, and he and his wife are the shluchim, the uh, emissaries of the Rebbe of Chabad to no other than Beijing, China. And those of you who are familiar with China will know that there is, well, at that time when they first came, very little Yiddishkeit, etc., but we'll hear about that more from our guest. It gives me personal great pleasure to welcome Rabbi Freundlich, because in addition to all his other wonderful qualities as a rabbi, as a counselor, as an individual who built up a magnificent community in Beijing, he is also 
my son-in-law married to my daughter. And because of that, there is this personal dimension of nachas and joy that I'm experiencing. Rabbi Freundlich, welcome to South Africa and welcome to this show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Yeah, wonderful. Rabbi Freundel, before we continue, let's talk a moment or two about what brings you here. After all, you know, you have this huge responsibility back home in Beijing, a tremendous community that you're running. What brings you to South Africa at this time? Today being in the Hebrew calendar, Yud Shavat is the day of the anniversary of the passing of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. And the day that the Lubavitch Rebbe, the seventh Rebbe in the Chabad dynasty of blessed memory, assumed the mantle of leadership. It's a day for Chabad of a great joy, great responsibility in the mission that the Rebbe gave us, which is to create a world of goodness, of kindness, as the Medrash says, a dwelling place, a comfortable dwelling place for God here on earth. And um, I've come out here to share some thoughts, ideas, stories with the South African Jewish community. I arrived on Wednesday and flew straight to Cape Town to be with the community there came to Johannesburg on Thursday, spoke last night at the Torah Academy for the Greater Chabad community, and this morning was in the Yeshiva High School. Yeshiva College. Correct. And then the Torah Academy Boys High School, Torah Academy Girls High School, and the Torah Academy Primary School, and now I'm here. So this is something which our community is quite notorious. They bring out guests from all parts of the world, and they truly tire them out. They give them a schedule of running around. I was present last night when Rabbi Freundlich spoke to the Greater Chabad community, a huge crowd at Torah Academy, and it was spellbinding. It was fascinating, the stories that he told I'm sure will continue to tell throughout his uh, stay. You speak about the, the mission that the Rebbe gave us. You speak about the mission that he gave us when he accepted the mantle of leadership. We have to remember that it was 1950, 51, and that's very soon after the Holocaust. And the Jewish people weren't at the height of strength and power, certainly emotionally, in a sense spiritually, and from so many other points of view, they were a crushed people. How is it that the Rebbe placed such a huge responsibility on, well, the Jewish people that they have to take the world and transform it into a place of goodness and kindness and holiness where divinity and godliness is something which is visible? How is it that he was able to speak to, in a sense, what was a broken people? and give them such huge responsibilities. The Rebbe hunted down every Jew in love. The Rebbe felt it his duty that just like on the opposite end of the spectrum, there was a tyrant, one that hunted down every Jew in hate, it was our responsibility to make sure we did the same 
with Ahavat Chinam, with love, unconditional love for every single Jew. And the Rebbe himself, having escaped the um, Nazi Germany and the Nazis themselves, came to the shores of America and started to rebuild Yiddishkeit for everyone, men, women, and children alike, and educate them in the most simple yet profound way that every single one of us are children of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. God loves us. We have to capitalize on that and bring that message to every single Jew, regardless of where they are. You know, it's quite fascinating when you think about what, in fact, has transpired in the last so many years. You know, since the Rebbe began his message when he accepted the mantle of leadership in 51, how the world has changed dramatically at the time. So many people, as I often mention, were already writing the obituary of, well, certainly orthodoxy, Torah through Judaism, and yet we see it flourish at levels which are beyond their imagination, and it continues to flourish. This is something which is fascinating, not because we see it in retrospect and therefore are, well, overwhelmed by the achievements of what has taken place over the past many years, but the Rebbe saw it in foresight. The Rebbe saw it as a vision. He had a vision in terms of a world that can and will be changed. We're going to continue to speak to Rabbi Freundlich because, well, he has some fascinating stories about his achievements in China, in Beijing. But we're going to take a short break, and we'll return just now. This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipska from Chabad of Hyde Park. I'm talking to our guest, Rabbi Freundlich, who's the head um, rabbi and the Chabad Shliach to uh, Beijing, China. And those of you who are familiar with Beijing, China, will know that China for a long time was a very closed society, and particularly Beijing, the capital, was a place which wasn't very welcoming to foreigners. And yet today there is a tremendous change in terms of the Jewish community, the facilities that are there. And I'd like to ask our guest, after all, how many years have you been there? 16 years. 16 years. And 16 years, well, you've done great things. But when you first came there, what did you see? What did you experience? What gave you the strength to come to a place with, well, strange language, strange custom? Uh, you grew up in a Western world, and this is heavily Eastern world. And you come there, and you what? You build a magnificent community. Tell us a little bit about it. Tell us about the uh, difficult times, the good times, the humorous times. Tell us about your experience together with um, with your wife, Dini, in Beijing, China. We were in Hong Kong before we moved to Beijing. In the year 2000, China put in a bid for the Olympics to be held in China in 2008. They put the bid in with the International Olympic Committee. At that time, I was working with somebody in Hong Kong, another Shliach, who had been there many years before me. And I wrote to the head office and said that I think China now is the future, and I think we need to have a Chabad house. 
in Beijing. There were Jews living in Beijing at the time, approximately 300, but there was absolutely no Jewish infrastructure whatsoever. And head office told me I should go there. I should speak to the Jewish people there, see how many men are there, women are there, families are there, children are there. Write a report, and then they will give me the decision. The rest is history. When I first came to Beijing, it was 10 days before Rosh Hashanah. (laughs) And I um, needed to look for Jews. It became known to me that at the center of town, which is not far from the Forbidden City in Tiananmen Square, there's a very famous Starbucks where many, many foreigners frequent there daily. And I figured that if I'm going to find Jews, that would be a good starting point. Why is that? Because I needed to find a place where a lot of foreigners hang out. They can't exactly go out into the street as Hadha Chabad do around the world and say, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? You can't do that in China. And I went there. I ordered myself a black coffee. I sat at the entrance. And I waited. And there were two ways that I figured out who were Jewish. If somebody came over to me, understand that I have a sizable beard. Seeing me today in Beijing is a chiddush, but then it certainly was. By chiddush you mean? <laughs> An unnatural phenomenon. <laughs> and, you know, some people came running over to me and they said, wow, are you a rabbi? Is there a Jewish community here? We never knew. And obviously that's one way I knew that they were Jewish. The other way is when certain people would look at me and then run for cover. <laughs> and I knew that they were Jewish and I would run after them. The first year, we didn't have a minion for Rosh Hashanah. Oh Kol Nidrebi had nine men. Oh my. For Neila, at the end of Yom Kippur, we had 27. And this past year, we had 427. Wow. And that is a huge accomplishment. You know, um, when I had the privilege and pleasure of visiting uh, Beijing, to visit my family, visit the community, I was taken aback at the fact that on one of the main streets stands this magnificent Chabad house, Chabad center. And I wonder, uh, well, first of all, that in itself is a huge accomplishment. But what is the reaction of the Chinese community, the Chinese authorities? Is Judaism a recognized religion in China? How is it that you're able to put up an edifice which is literally a, a beacon of, well, a light toward Judaism? How is it you're able to do something like that in China? We have to work together with the Chinese government. It's very important. There are five recognized religions in China. Judaism is not one of them. However, the Chinese government has a section that deals with minorities that are practicing their religion in China that are not officially recognized by the state. And each head of the religion, whatever it may be, are appointed a government contact. And when I built this building together with Dini, they came to me and asked me what exactly I'm doing. And I told them that I'm putting up a building that is in tribute to the Chinese government. And they said, what do you mean? And I said that because many countries destroyed synagogues and anything Jewish. However, China 
served as, as a safe haven for Jewish people during the war, whether it was in Harbin, in Tianjin, in Shanghai. And therefore, this building is in tribute to them. And what we did is design our building after the 11 synagogues that used to be in China. Some of them are still standing today. There were synagogues in China from in the past? There were synagogues in China in Harbin, Tianjin, Hailiar, which is in Mongolia, in Nanjing, in Shanghai. Where did these communities come from, or were they always living there? From uh, Russia, primarily. They came south to China. Correct, except the ones in Shanghai, they came from other parts of Europe. And um, at the time, Harbin had 30,000 Jews. What, what years were that? This was in the late 19th century. Wow. There, there were only 300,000 people in Harbin at the time, 30,000 Jews. The mayor of Harbin at the time was a Jew. Amazing. They have a synagogue still standing today that was recently renovated by the Chinese government that from floor to ceiling is 100 meters. Wow. An absolutely magnificent, magnificent synagogue. Where is Harbin in China? Harbin is about a two and a half hour flight from Beijing. Which way? It borders north. It borders Siberia. Uh, all the way there. Correct. And um, then they had in Tianjin 10,000 Jews. That's, a, that's amazing. Correct. Also at the same time or later or earlier? Um, later. They, they had it later. Part of what we did was we not only designed the building after the 11 synagogues, for example, the facade in the front after Tianjin, the bima like Shanghai and the um, cafe that we have within the Chabad House itself, the dairy cafe after the Jewish free soup kitchen um, in Harbin, but we also have many, many artifacts that used to belong to the Jewish communities of China. So, for example, one of our prized possessions is a yad made out of copper. A yad? A yad is a um, pointer for the Torah. And on the top is engraved the words, Kimitzion Teite Torah, from Zion, goes the Torah. And the top of the pointer is shaped like a dragon. Wow. So it's both cultures, the Chinese and the Jewish culture. Correct. And we have the Kisish uh, the chair of Elijah, that is used for a Brit from Tianjin, the original chair. We have a bench, a synagogue bench from Hong Kong from 1902. And many, many photos. We have shawl clocks that they used to have at the time. We have a freedom pass, which was something... So, so it's not only a, a Jewish spiritual center, it also is, in a sense, a museum of sorts. Correct. And that way, it appealed to the Chinese people. Because on the one hand, the when I say the people, I mean the government. On the one hand, Judaism is not a recognized religion. However, on the other hand, they view it more as a museum. But uh, what I understand, Beijing had nothing. Beijing did not have a Jewish community at all in the ancient days, early days. Nothing that we know of, no. It wasn't part of the Silk Route also, so that's why. And when you came there? And you, and you found your Jews, your Starbucks Jews, what did you do with them? So eventually, we, you know, we started a uh, Sunday Hebrew school, and which developed now into a Jewish day school. And depending on the, the year, we can have anywhere between 50 and 75 kids. That's amazing. A Jewish day school in Beijing. 
Yeah. We forty percent of the of the time the with they teach in in uh, English in our school, forty percent in Ivrit Hebrew, and twenty percent in Chinese. So the children are fluent in three languages. Correct. I know my grandchildren. I don't know what they think, but they certainly speak, read, and write Chinese. I think when the children want to say something between themselves so the parents or even the grandparents shouldn't understand, they chat away, they chirp away in Chinese. Yeah, it used to be the other way around, that parents had a language that kids never understood, but in my case, it's the opposite. Where did you begin? Where were you housed? How did it all start? We started off in an apartment. And then we moved to a villa within a compound. And from there we moved to a larger villa. And eventually we had a restaurant which was in what we call like a midrach of a uh, pathway of various restaurants, about 40 of them. And like an Indian one, French one, Italian one, etc. And they had ours also. We had beautiful Jerusalem stone there. And um, eventually when that had to be taken down, we looked for a new place. And we found this place. And the words we put on the front of the building was, that this is a home, essentially, for all nations. And that's uh, when I told that to the Chinese government, it really appealed to them that this is a home that we pray not only for the Jewish community, but for all of civilization. What did you do for kosher food when you first arrived? When we first arrived, one of the things that I did was go to a supermarket that had imported products because by default some of the products that are being brought in particularly from the states have an OU a kosher symbol on them however to my chagrin the only two products that they had at the time was Heinz ketchup and lemon juice can't live on that (laughs) not at all Um, and then you know the first thing we had to do is um, do a shechita. We had to do a production of kosher meat. You know, you can't talk to people. You can't uh, um, talk to a community about keeping kosher if you just don't have the staple foods that you need. And um, we started the production of kosher beef. We first uh, brought out a shochet every six months, and now it's uh, down to three months. We had, um, for many, many years, we had uh, Rabbi Chaim Klein from the Chabad community here of South Africa. And because of him, hundreds of thousands of Jews who came to China had kosher chicken. Because all of the Chabad houses in China received their kosher chicken from the production that we do in Beijing. Amazing. What kind of community is it? What kind of people are there? Are they Chinese? Are they Westerners? What kind of people make up the Jewish community, particularly in Beijing? We are only allowed to provide a service for foreign passport holders only. Why is that? Because Judaism is not a recognized religion in China, and therefore, even if a Chinese person comes to us and they want to participate in something that we do, as far as the Chinese government is concerned, that to them is proselytizing. And that is forbidden. We are only allowed to provide a service for the Jewish community. And... You know, we have 2,000 living there now. 2,000 Jews living. And approximately 75,000 who come through our doors on a yearly basis from all over the world between tourists and business people. Wow. 
75,000 Jews come through Beijing. And do you feed them all? Every <laughs> last one. <laughs> that is quite amazing when you think about it. I mean, wasn't it an overwhelming responsibility? After all, the Chinese spoken in Beijing is Mandarin as opposed to the Chinese in Hong Kong, which is Cantonese. And perhaps you were familiar with Cantonese. But how did you communicate, go into a shop? How did you do anything? Well, initially it was very difficult because the language in Mandarin has four tones to it. Tones? Tones, which means you can sing every word four different ways. Oh and if you sing it wrong, then you, it means something completely different. Sounds like bar mitzvah lessons has gone wrong. <laughs> I mean, the word ma, M-A, for example, if it's sung in four different ways, could either mean mother horse, linen, or scold. Oh, my. We're going to come back in a few moments. We're talking to Rabbi Shimon Freundlich, the rabbi and Chabad Shliach to Beijing, telling us a fascinating story of how he and his wife came to the strange place and built up a magnificent community. But more of that soon. This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipska from Chabad of Hyde Park. We're back. We're talking to Rabbi Freundlich, listening to these fascinating stories of Jewish life and Jewish development of Jewish life in places like Beijing, China. Rabbi Freundlich, I know that um, in the Olympics that took place in Beijing in 2008, I know this might sound a bit strange to our listeners, but you played a very important role, not only in terms of uh, well providing Jewish facilities to uh, visitors, whatever the case might be, but um, you were there in an official capacity. Can you tell us about that? I found out in 2005 that in the Constitution of the Olympics, it's a clause that states that any country hosting the Olympics have to provide a place for Jews to pray and food for Jews to eat. This was implemented after the massacre in 1972 in Munich, where 11 Israeli athletes were brutally murdered. However, being that... China does not recognize Judaism as a religion. I knew it was going to be a little bit tricky. I had three years to work on it. And I worked with my government contact. And uh, we were successful in the end because Beijing had promised the International Olympic Committee that they would adhere to all of the responsibilities that they need to fulfill. When I first came, well, I came there toward the end of the Olympics for a visit and you met me at the airport. You were wearing a rather strange uniform. Can you tell us about that? All the judges, coaches, athletes had a certain uniform that they wore um, and in the Olympic Village. Everybody, if you were in the Olympic Village, you had to wear that. And we had a place in the Olympic Village with... Um, where we set up shops so that we can supply a service to the Jewish athletes, not only the Israeli team, but they were from Canada, there was from uh, United States, Mexico, Russia. I remember it was on um, Erev Shabbos, it was Friday. I distributed 108 chalas to 108 athletes from different countries. Wow. And that uniform that you were wearing? And the uniform that I was wearing. So it was actually, it was quite funny because when, you know, when I was uh, walking around the Olympics, almost every person stopped me and said, what sport are you competing in? <laughs> <laughs> Little did they know. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
but it was it was uh, it was amazing. They um, they allowed us to make the food for the Israelis, and which was really closed off. There was no other caterer other than the ones that uh, um, um, were assigned to supply food in the Olympic Village. I remember they came to our restaurant and they, you know, from the health department, there was like five people and they came in a video camera to make sure that they video everything. And I remember that they, you know, they videoed the challah while it was rising and I told them that it's going to take a few minutes and they, they said that it doesn't matter, they, they have to, uh, they have to do this. And then they put the challah in the oven and they were standing in front of the oven for 45 minutes with a camera. And then they went back to the office and they rewatched it with all the staff over there. But it was uh, wonderful that we'd be able to supply that service to the Jewish. Uh, so you were the official rabbi of the Beijing Olympics. I was the nominated as the official rabbi of the Olympics, and they're very, very proud of it till today. In fact, they recently came to my office and asked me to be the rabbi of the Winter Olympics for 2022, which Where's is going to be in China. Where in China? In Beijing. Oh wow! And on Qingdao, a few so, places. So you still have the uh, uniform that you were wearing at the time. I think the size needs to be adjusted. <laughs> well, my friend, look, you know, this is show normally as I give a sheer on the parsha, we talk about it at length, in depth, and I know many people out there listening would like to hear a vort about the parsha. And while perhaps it might be a bit of a stretch, a bit difficult to connect the parsha b'shalach to uh, to Beijing, China. But you being the, uh, well, renowned auditor that you are and uh, have a tremendous capacity to, well, to deliver and to uh, teach aspects of Torah, particularly the Parsha, maybe you could find some sort of connection between the Parsha this week and the story of your great success in China. Well, I think, first of all, you know, we look at all of the Jews that left Egypt there were a multitude of Jews from various types of um, observances. And I talk about observances, I don't mean observances necessarily in the mitzvot, but more in uh, philosophical ideas. You had the notorious rebels, Datan and Aviram, and then you had people like uh, Moshe and Aaron, and everybody in between. And yet, when it came to the redemption, all of them left because they were all part of the Jewish people. This is something that the Lubavitch Rebbe of Righteous Memory created with the concept of a base Chabad or base Lubavitch. He did not call it center, organization, institution, corporation, but rather base Chabad, base Lubavitch, a Chabad house, a Lubavitch house. And the reason for that is because he wanted every Jew, wherever they are in the world, to feel like they have a home to come to, a home away from home. And within our Chabad house, we have people that wear shrimals and white socks, like you see very often in Jerusalem in particular. And then you have Jews that, uh, who have come to a Shabbos table who are going out with a non-Jewish girlfriend. And uh, the Rebbe taught us, based on the Torah and based on the characters of the Torah, that Judaism is for everyone. Everyone is a part of it. And we find in this week's Parsha, when they came to the Sea of Reeds, and you had various schools of thought of what to do. Should they just, um, you know, give up? Should they go back to Egypt? Should they wage war against the Egyptians? Should they pray? We find that God tells Moses, Tell them 
just to do their job. And their job is to move forward. You see, in life, there are always challenges. There's always hardships. There are difficult times. And very often people think that the best response, the easier response, the more effective response would be just to give up. And the Rebbe taught us with the way he led the movement that don't get caught up in the challenge don't allow it to bring you down because all kind of negative things happen as a result of that you have to just move forward and if you do that if that is your attitude then god will split the sea for you and you will get the true reward that you deserve which is the torah sometimes the um the response of VSO seems very difficult. How am I going to jump into this sea, which seems to be overwhelming, all-consuming? But that's, that's, that's not a calculation that we have to make. And I see that from the Rebbe. The Rebbe never took a vacation in all the years of leadership. It was constantly on the go, constantly move. Again, you've accomplished something, and that's a wonderful thing. Now what's next? Very often a person had uh, completed a safer a book and was very happy with their accomplishment they would come to the Rebbe and the Rebbe would give them a contribution for that book and then give them a contribution for another book they didn't tell the Rebbe they were going to do another book but the Rebbe said okay fine now that you've accomplished this what's next on the agenda I'm sorry that we're running out of time it would have been a pleasure to speak to you at the well far greater length I know that uh, we could talk about so many different aspects of your life there and your achievements there but perhaps another time at your next visit, you'll come back to our show here. It'll be my absolute pleasure. You're spending Shabbos with the Torah Academy community, so those of you who are in the area, why don't you come along to the Torah Academy? Still, I think tomorrow, mainly, and you'll have the pleasure of hearing Rabbi Freundlich live, and it will be a tremendous opportunity as well as Chabad of Saint Yellow Manor. There's a um, breakfast on Sunday morning. Um, where Rabbi Freundlich will be speaking, and it'll be, uh, well, I'm sure it'll be a great and wonderful event. Well, this is the story. When you're in Shul tomorrow, as you hear me say every week, well, I don't expect you to think about China, but think about what Rabbi Freundlich said toward the end of his talk, the idea of handling challenges, not becoming overwhelmed or crippled by the difficulty, but rather seeing the opportunity and going forward. It's a Shabbos of song. It's a Shabbos of joy. It's a Shabbos that you have to celebrate being greater than you are. Joy is something which breaks down all barriers, all resistance. When a person is full of joy, he is able to accomplish well whatever it is that has to be accomplished. And therefore, in Shul tomorrow, when you hear the song of Azia, share the song that gives Shabbos its special name, Shabbat Shira, the Shabbos of the song, sing along in your mind. Sing along that it touches your heart. You become joyous within, and you accomplish great things. Good Shabbos.